Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servers, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told them, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it. And when the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine without knowing where it came from, although the servers who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, an inferior one, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs at Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord. We have before us a remarkably beautiful set of readings as our observation, our celebration of the Christmas season comes to an end. Tomorrow is the Feast of the Epiphany, the manifestation of the Lord. Monday is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, and that is the last day of the Christmas season. And so ordinary time begins again on Tuesday. So you'll also see that beginning on Tuesday, especially with the outdoor decorations, we'll begin to dismantle those, mainly because we have to beat the snow. Um, but this is not Tuesday. This is Saturday within the season of Christmas, the day before we celebrate the great feast of the Epiphany, a feast that in the history of the church is connected to three different incidents in the life of Jesus. Most famously, the visit of the three magi, the three kings. But then also, the baptism of the Lord by his cousin, St. John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. And thirdly, his arrival at a wedding at Cana in Galilee, the reading that we have today. And this is one of the three incidents in the life of Jesus which is connected to the feast that we call the Epiphany of the Lord. Epiphany meaning the manifestation, the shining forth of the Lord. 
And so there is the star, which leads the Magi to where the Lord is with his mother, where his presence shines forth for them. On the day of his baptism in the Jordan, the heavens are open. The Spirit rushes upon him, and a voice is heard proclaiming him the beloved Son. The hidden life of Jesus is over. He steps, in a sense, out of hiding and goes forth to manifest the kingdom of God. And then we have our reading in today's gospel, the very familiar and yet difficult to fully understand incident that happens at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And when we look at stories like this in the Gospels, a useful skill over time, especially with familiar stories, is to bracket the middle part of the story, which is pretty much what we think we know, the details about what happened, and to pay careful attention to how it begins and how it ends. Because that's what frames what goes on in the story. And so let's look at this. First, how does it begin? Very simply, St. John writes, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Note how it begins. It doesn't begin with Jesus directly. There was a wedding, and the mother of Jesus was there. Note how he leads. And so we see that there's something about what happens next which follows necessarily on the fact that the mother of Jesus is there. Note how he continues. And Jesus and his disciples were also there, implying in a sense that they didn't necessarily come together, implying in a sense that two invitations went out, one to Jesus, but one also to Our Lady. And so in this account of the wedding at Cana, what we have is the Holy Spirit wanting to tell us something about what happens when Our Lady is present. But now if we jump across all of the details to the very end of the narrative that we were given today, we see something else. We see the reason why everything happens happened in the first place. And this is a, an odd statement to make at first because you think, well, no, Father, the reason everything happened the way it did was they ran out of wine and Mary asked Jesus to do something. But this is not a story about wine. And it's not merely a story about a wedding. It is about something greater than that, even though it involves these things. The final words of our gospel reading today. And Jesus worked this, the first of his signs, at Cana in Galilee, and so manifested his glory. And his disciples began to believe in him. Note the point of everything that happens. This is at the service of the Lord showing forth his glory so that his disciples can believe. 
This is not merely an act of charity, although it is. This is not merely the Lord taking care of a married couple, although it involves that. This is not simply a remarkable exercise of power, although it is that. It is something much more profound, much more beautiful. The Lord worked this, the first of his signs, at Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory. This is why Pope St. John Paul II, when he proposed the mysteries of light for the rosary, insisted on including this one. This one by which the Lord manifests or reveals his glory so that his disciples can believe. Let's linger with that idea for a moment because that seems like a strange thing to say again. And this is one of the marvelous elements of this account at the wedding in Cana. There are so many odd details within it. One would think if they were his disciples that they already believed, wouldn't we? And so note what the apostle is insisting on. St. John, who wrote this gospel, is one of those disciples who begins to believe here. And so what we see is that those who are with Jesus know him well enough to follow him, are curious enough about him to stay with him. They accompany him, they travel with him, but there's something about him that they do not yet know. There is something about him that they still do not fully understand. And if we're honest about ourselves, that could be a pretty fair de description of us. You know, we fall into patterns. I know my faith is important, but there's something about it that seems a little slippery. I can't quite fully understand it. I can't quite come to the heart of it. And so note what we have. We have these men who are traveling with Jesus, who have heard his initial preaching, they are coming to know him, but they do not yet have a certain fullness about their faith. And they're not going to until the Lord reveals himself more fully to them. And this is the other important element here. Coming to know the Lord is never merely a matter of the work we put into it, although we have to do that. Rather, it is letting him disclose himself to us in his time, on his schedule, in his way. And so interestingly enough, Jesus comes and he brings his disciples with, them to, with him to this wedding. And you can almost, almost wonder what the disciples' reaction to this is. Really, do I need to set time aside for this? I don't even know these people. And yet they all show up, and there's something about their being at the wedding which is part of how they are with Jesus. It is the Lord who brings them. They're not merely other guests. They are those who come with Jesus. And coming with Jesus into this 
setting. Imagine that for a moment, going to a party with Jesus. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves thinking, boy, I'd behave a lot better if I did that. But here they are. They go to the celebration with the Lord. They are at the celebration with the Lord. And so everything now that happens, happens before their eyes, in their hearing, right in front of them. Notice, the bridegroom and the bride don't know what's happening. The chief steward doesn't know what's happening. The other guests don't know what's happening. Only the servants who ran out of wine, our lady, our Lord, and the disciples who are with him have any sense of what, in fact, is happening here. And so it is then. This is the setting. The disciples are with Jesus. And in front of those disciples, Our Lady, who has noted the absence of wine, turns to her son and says, they have no wine. It's a simple, simple statement, but it is a prayer. She turns to him and simply states the need. They have no wine. Notice she doesn't give him instructions. She doesn't get controlling or overly specific like we would do. They have no wine, and I think a nice Merlot would be good. No, she simply says they have no wine, leaving it for him to act. But note Our Lady. She's concerned about the the feast. She's concerned about the couple. She's concerned about the servants, but she is also concerned about those disciples. And so she speaks to her son in their hearing where they can see what he's going to do. When Our Lady is present, this is the kind of activity she has. And so it's at this point that the story gets odd again in the way Jesus speaks to his mother. Now, how old are you, young lady? Eight. Now, I have a question for you. If your mom asked you to do something, and you looked at your mom, and you said, woman, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? Would you live to be nine? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> what a remarkable answer. You know, that this story that seems so safe and so familiar, and then all of a sudden Jesus turns to Our Lady. Woman, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? How off-putting. How absolutely odd, how rude. And again, Jesus is many things, but apparently he's not always polite. And what are we to make of this? Because it's not a nice statement. It's not a pleasant statement. It's off-putting. It's rude. It's dismissive. Think about all those times you've prayed. And you've prayed hard for something that's important. But 
because it's so important, there's a certain insecurity that comes over us. And so we say our amen and we get up and we're like, did I say it right? Did I do it right? And we go back down and we start over. Or we have those doubts and those second thoughts that come to us. After everything I've done, why do I think he's going to listen to me? Why, why do I have any right to expect anything? We do that, don't we? And you notice what happens? We take our prayer back. The doubt comes, the uncertainty comes, the insecurity comes. And so we place our prayer in Jesus' hands, and then we claw it back because we're afraid of being disappointed. We're afraid he's going to say no. And so Jesus turns to Our Lady, and he speaks to her with the voice of all of those doubts that come to you. What does this have to do with me? And Our Lady, note, all of this happens in front of the disciples who are probably, how does he speak to his mother like that? And yet she seems to be completely untroubled and unbothered by this. Because sometimes the Lord is a little off-putting in how he speaks to us, but it's always at the service of pulling something more out of us. So Our Lady's attitude is, last time I checked, you're the Son of God, not me. I can't tell you what this has to do with you, but you can show me. So Our Lady's answer, she's not going to explain to Jesus why this is important to him, because she doesn't know that. Rather, she's going to leave the prayer there and let him do something with it. You show me what is important. Note the attitude. We pray sometimes trying to convince the Lord why he should answer us. Our Lady is content that he's going to give an answer of some kind and it'll be the right one. And so her response, her response to her son is to call the servants over to the table. Again, right in front of the disciples. So Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And Our Lady calls the servants over. They all come over, responding to her. And she points to her son. What does this have to do with me? Our Lady has given him every chance to show her. She calls the servants over. Do whatever he tells you. In other words, you tell me. You show me what this has to do with you. What a remarkable moment this is. This bold willingness of Our Lady to call out from her son the manifestation of who he is and what all of this means. She's not going to tell him, but she's going to let him show. And so then it gets strange again because the servants are looking at Jesus thinking, okay, he must have something to do with where we can get wine. And that's what they're waiting for because they ran out of wine. And Jesus, do you remember what Jesus asks for in the story? Does that make any sense? Buckets of water? No, no it doesn't. That's a, that's a pretty odd thing to say, isn't it? 
Think about that for a second. They're out of wine, and what does Jesus say? Get me some water. Does that make any sense at all? And not a glass because he's thirsty. Six jars that hold about 30 gallons each. Fill them up, 180 gallons of water. That's like running out of gas on the Sunrise Highway and saying, go get me a six-pack of Coca-Cola. And you know, we'll, we'll use that. It doesn't make any sense at all. Note how strange this story is. And so here, the Lord speaks an impossible word to the servants that Mary calls forward. Fill these jars with water. It's an impossible word. It's a foolish word. Frankly, in worldly terms, it's a stupid word. There's no point, it makes no sense, and you notice he doesn't explain himself. And oddly enough, they do it. And you can imagine the disciples sitting there at the table looking at each other like, that's crazy. What does he want water for? No one's seen Jesus work a miracle yet. Jesus has no reputation as a miracle worker here. This is his first sign, not his second or his third. No one's seen him do anything special like this. And so all of it, so everybody's wondering what on earth is going on. And bucket after bucket after bucket after bucket until those jars are full. And they're done, and they look at him. And they're thinking, okay, now give us the wine. And what does Jesus say? Oh, take some of that and give it to your boss. And again, it's a crazy thing to say. Why would they take a cup of water to their boss? And yet, they do it. And the story hinges on these odd details, the odd way Jesus speaks to Mary, the odd response of Mary of calling the servants, then this odd series of instructions, bring me water. Now take the water to the steward. And what do we have yet? Water. And what do we need? Wine. And has Jesus explained anything? No, not a bit. And yet, curiously, these servants respond. They take the wine to the steward who lifts it to his mouth. He starts with a cup of water, and he tastes wine. Notice how marvelous this is, how the miracle comes. Rather than standing up in front of everybody, because he could have done that, Jesus could have just waved his hand, and there would have been wine on every table. Jesus could have done this himself, but he didn't. Rather, he was pleased to work through chosen servants who were called to him, who responded to his word. And because they responded with trust and obedience, the miracle happened. If the servants say no, there's no miracle. Not because Jesus isn't there, but because this is how he's chosen to do it. So note what happens. There's puzzlement. The steward is puzzled at how good the wine is and why we're saving it until now. The groom, 
Hearing all of this is probably thinking, I saved the best wine until now? Oh, yes, I did, I did. <laughs> um, note how no one understands the origin of this, only that it's wonderful. But there are those who see the origin of this and that it is indeed more wonderful than the mind can understand. And it's the disciples at the table watching all of this. They saw the way Our Lady turned to our Lord. They saw the way she called those servants over. They saw the way these servants brought by Our Lady responded. They saw the work. They heard how foolish the command was. But they saw that through those servants sent by the Lord, a miracle happened. And they began to believe. Note how marvelous this is. And how wonderfully hidden it is. On the one hand, St. John says he revealed his glory. And the mental picture when we just hear those words is almost like a bright light going off. But there isn't that at least not for everybody. He revealed his glory to those who were with him. The rest of the world doesn't know. The rest of the world doesn't see. But those who were there, everything is different now. Everything sounds different. Everything looks different. Now they know that Jesus is more than they thought. And so now their hearts are roused and stirred to a fullness of faith that wasn't there before. And notice, they didn't have to do anything except show up and be with him. But having shown up and having been with him, they also understand the day will come when they will be like those servants, given a word that might be difficult, might seem foolish, and yet through it, Grace, blessing, and miraculous, joy-filled abundance will come into the world from Jesus, but through them. What a marvelous, what a marvelous mystery this indeed is. And how good it is that we have it with us on a day where we will receive Holy Communion and then linger here in the presence of the Lord enthroned upon this altar. But then afterwards, we will go forth from this wedding banquet, having tasted the new wine of his presence, the new wine of salvation. And why? To bear it out into the world. Because note how the Lord is pleased to reveal his glory. He made use of Our Lady and those servants. And how, he, how those servants responded to him opened the eyes even of his disciples. The world doesn't see with physical eyes the face of Jesus Christ. But the world does see and hear those who claim to know him. And that is how the Lord is still pleased to reveal and show his glory in and to the world. Amen.